To borrow the words of my colleague, Dr. Sam Dawson, this is a work in progress. Uh, it started out as an excursus, a single page excursus in a class that I teach uh, non-Pauline epistles, and I've expanded it. It's not quite where I want it to be, that's my caveat, but it's, uh, it is being birthed at this time. I should also mention, it's a bit technical. Uh, I kind of geared it toward those with, uh, in seminary or who have been through seminary, and my apologies if it is a bit technical for those um, not so described. All right, let's begin. Uh, as you can see, the title is The Perseverance of the Saints and Faithfulness in Ministry, A Biblical Theology of Perseverance and Faithfulness. Introduction. On at least one occasion, the Apostle Paul identifies faithfulness as a sole criteria for success in ministry and the basis on which his life will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul makes two points in this passage that are important for this study. That should be first. There's the first typo, in case you're wondering. First, Paul is the Lord's servant and will be judged by the Lord. Second, Paul's judgment by the Lord will be on the single basis of faithfulness. That's what he says. Elsewhere, Paul conditions final salvation and accountability at the judgment seat of Christ with the perseverance of the saints. In Colossians 1, Paul writes, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, but notice the condition. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Again, Paul makes two points in this passage that are important for this study. First, the readers will stand before the Lord when he comes. Second, the readers must persevere in the faith for that to be true. The study will examine the nature of perseverance and the connection between perseverance and faithfulness as the sole benchmark for success in ministry and accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. What is meant by perseverance is that a true believer, one who has been regenerated by God's Spirit through the gospel, will continue in the faith, that is, will continue to believe the gospel. Perseverance also means that a true believer will demonstrate some level of faithfulness to God's word as evidenced in good works. In short, perseverance involves two propositions. All true believers will persevere in the faith 
and all true believers will persevere in faithfulness or good works. First proposition, perseverance in faith. What is meant by the first proposition is that all true believers will persevere in faith, that is, in believing the gospel, without exception. On several occasions, the author of Hebrews identifies persevering in faith as the necessary mark of true believers. The key text is chapter 3, verse 14. In this verse, the author of Hebrews states, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The clause, for we have become partakers of Christ, represents the apodosis of a third-class condition. In the apodosis, the author of Hebrews uses the perfect tense of an equative verb, we have become, to indicate a change in the reader's nature or condition. The apodosis describes those who have, be, have come to share in Christ and in the life of Christ in salvation. However, the author of Hebrews places a condition on those who have become partakers of Christ with the prodosis of the conditional clause. Quote, if we hold fast the beginning of our insurance, that should be the hold fast the beginning of our insurance firm until the end. The verb plus object, hold fast, means to hold firmly or steadfastly to something. The author of Hebrews identifies what the readers are to hold fast as the beginning of our assurance. The substantive assurance is used elsewhere in Hebrews to describe one's convictions or confidence in Christ and in his return. And the combination, the beginning of our insurance, describes the point at which the readers gain this assurance and confidence, that is, to their original commitment at salvation. The author of Hebrews adds the prepositional phrase until the end to indicate the extent in time the readers are to hold fast their assurance. The phrase can refer to the return of Christ to rapture the church, or it can refer to the end of one's life. The second option is preferred, though either is viable. In any case, once a person dies, the destiny of that person is fixed and irrevocable. From the surrounding context, the reader's assurance, which they are to hold fast, refers to the salvation the Son has proclaimed, a reference to the gospel of Christ. Thus, to hold fast to their assurance until the end means to persevere in believing the gospel until death. Three points need to be made concerning the third-class condition in support of the proposition that all true believers persevere in believing the gospel without exception. The first point is that a third-class condition expresses a broad range from what is likely to be fulfilled to what is hypothetical and unlikely to be fulfilled. In this case, the author of Hebrews uses the third-class condition to express what is likely to occur elsewhere in his letter, he expresses confidence in the reader's salvation. That said, the author of Hebrews does not use a first-class condition 
which would assume the readers will hold fast their assurance to the end. The author of Hebrews uses a third class condition to function as an exhortation to encourage the readers to hold fast. Furthermore, all conditional clauses show a necessary connection between the protasis and the apodosis. If the protasis is true, the readers holding fast their assurance until the end, then the apodosis is also true. They have become partakers of the life of Christ. The second point is that the author of Hebrews uses the third class condition in an evidence-inference relationship rather than a cause-effect relationship. If he had intended a cause-effect relationship, that would mean that perseverance in believing the gospel, the cause, is a necessary condition for partaking of the life of Christ in salvation, the effect. In other words, true believers would not share in the life of Christ in salvation until they had persevered to the end of life. Yet scripture is clear that sharing in the life of Christ in salvation starts in regeneration with the initial exercising of repentant faith. Furthermore, a cause and effect relationship would make sharing in the life of Christ in salvation conditioned on the believer's perseverance, a work. Elsewhere, scripture rules out all works as a condition for salvation. Rather, the conditional clause in this verse has an evidence-inference relationship. If you hold fast your confidence in the gospel, the evidence, then you have become a partaker of Christ, the inference. In some, the reader's perseverance in believing the gospel is the necessary evidence that the apodosis is true, that is, that they have become partakers of Christ in salvation. The third point related to the second is that the tenses the author of Hebrews uses in, the condi- in this conditional clause makes the conditional clause retrospective rather than prospective. What is meant by this is that the apodosis then takes place prior to the protasis if. The protasis, their perseverance in believing the gospel is the evidence that they have already become partakers of Christ in salvation. The author of Hebrews uses the perfect tense in the apodosis and an aorist subjunctive in the protasis. The perfect tense in the apodosis means that the reader's partaking of the life of Christ in salvation has taken place at some point in the past with the results continuing up through the time of writing. The aorist subjunctive simply identifies what must be true at any point in their lives in order for the apodosis to be true. Putting the above together, the author of Hebrews identifies perseverance in believing the gospel as the necessary evidence that one has become a partaker of of the life of Christ in salvation. Furthermore, the author of Hebrews indicates that perseverance in believing the gospel must continue to the end of life for the evidence to be valid. Finally, the conditional clause allows for no exceptions. This This does not rule out a true believer having questions or even doubts. After all, John the Baptist asked Jesus, are you the coming one or shall we look for someone else? But true believers will never come to abandon their faith in the gospel. 
So restating the proposition, the first, all true believers will persevere in the faith without exceptions. I'm going to pause it here and see if you have questions. Did I warn you this was rather technical? Did I warn you that? Did I mention that already? I did, didn't I? <laughs> Any questions so far? Okay, let's go on. Now, there are objections to that proposition. Two objections are raised against the first proposition. The first concerns the warning passages in Hebrews. And the second concerns Peter's denial of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. Taking these in order, all five should be all five of the warning passages in Hebrews address the same issues and must be examined together for a proper interpretation of each. That said, the consensus among interpreters is that Hebrews 6 is the key text. Let me quote it. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. The author of Hebrews' descriptions of the individual in these verses are used elsewhere in Hebrews and the New Testament to describe believers. At the same time, his descriptions in these verses can also describe those who have experienced the general convicting work of the Spirit through the gospel. Our Lord refers to that, refers to that as the general call of the gospel in John 16. They have, been made a, they have made a profession of faith, have witnessed miracles, but who are not saved. For example, this would include such individuals as Judas Iscariot and Simon Magus. It was said of Simon Magus that he believed, that's the word used, he was baptized, but when he tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter spoke of him in terms that he was lost and under God's righteous condemnation. So I'm saying that you could interpret those verses as describing someone like Simon or like Judas. The author of Hebrews' description in these verses can legitimately be applied to both men. With that in mind, the author of Hebrews' illustration about the two soils in the verses that follow. One soil brings forth fruit, and one soil does not. The soil that brings forth fruit, the fruit there is perseverance. The one soil that does not lacks that and is burned. And his description of the readers in verse 9, he says, although we speak as we are speaking, we think better things of you. We've been speaking about things here that do not pertain to salvation, but we speak better things of you, things that pertain to salvation. So he seems to be making a distinction there. So I say again, the author of Hebrews' illustration in verses 6, 7, and 8 and his description of the readers in verse 9 argues for the second option. From this and the other warning passages, the author of Hebrews' statement in verse 6 about those who have fallen away refers to apostasy. 
It describes the rejection of faith in the gospel by those who once professed faith. The impossibility of renewing these means that there is no remedy for those who have fallen away in this way. They are eternally lost and will experience God's final judgment. In short, the warning passages do not describe true believers rejecting the gospel that at one time they had embraced and thus losing their salvation. The warning passages describe those who have made professions of faith would have come to reject the faith and in doing so has shown themselves to be unbelievers. Thus, the warning passages do not contradict the first proposition that all true believers will persevere in believing the gospel to the end without exception. So I'm going to pause it here for just a minute. Um, the questions are often raised. Um, how do we know if someone has committed apostasy? And the only answer I can give is that only God knows the heart. Only God knows to what degree they were committed in their affirmation of the gospel and to what degree have they come to reject the gospel. Only God knows the heart. There are those that, having been associated with a believing community, have come to say, well, I no longer believe that. I would still say that those are able to be brought to faith by the working of God's Spirit, assuming that their rejection is not a hard and final rejection, if that makes sense. So I think we can pray for those individuals with a, with a, with a level of confidence, not knowing their heart, but only God knows the heart. Let's go on. The second objection concerns Peter's denial of Jesus as recorded in Matthew 26 and elsewhere in the Gospels. Is Peter denial, Peter's denial an exception to the first proposition? During Jesus' interrogation by the high priest on the night before his crucifixion, Peter was confronted and questioned about being a follower of Jesus. Fearing the consequences and to avoid persecution, Peter denied that he knew Jesus. Just before this, Jesus had warned Peter that Peter would deny him three times. Although Peter denied knowing Jesus to avoid persecution, there is no evidence that Peter rejected his faith in Jesus. In other words, Peter's denial was a lapse in his faithfulness to Jesus, not an act of apostasy in rejecting the truth of the gospel. That said, the tension comes with Peter's denial is over how to harmonize his denial with Jesus' statement in Matthew 10, quote, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. <laughs> For Jesus to deny someone before the Father means to deny that someone is saved, that someone is a true believer. The question is over what does Jesus mean by whoever, den whoever denies me before men. If Jesus includes what Peter did, then Peter must have been an unbeliever when he denied Jesus. Yet the evidence appears conclusive that Peter was a believer prior to his denying Jesus. Support comes from Peter's confession of Jesus as recorded in Matthew 16. 
a confession that occurred well before Peter's denial. In answer to Jesus' question about who he is, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In response, Jesus pronounces a blessing on Peter. Furthermore, Jesus points to Peter's confession as exemplary and as something that God alone had revealed to him. <laughs> also, Jesus prior to, excuse me, also just prior to Jesus' prediction about Peter's denial, Jesus acknowledged Peter's faith. Jesus warns Peter that Satan wants to attack him. And then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. For Jesus to pray that Peter's faith may not fail means to pray that Peter's faith will not come to an end. It will not cease to be. Assuming Jesus' prayer was answered, and I want to pause there. <clears throat> Jesus is praying. I'm assuming the Father answered his prayer. <clears throat> Peter's faith did not fail even though he denied knowing Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus' subsequent statement, once you have turned again, does not argue against Peter persevering in his faith. The statement refers to Peter's restoration to faithfulness, not to a restoration of his faith. Therefore, what Jesus must mean by deny me before men is to deny the truth of the gospel. This Peter did not do. All right. So far, so good? I'm still saved, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle. Just a question on that last point that you made there. Um, if someone were to push back and say, Jesus prays in the garden, let this cup pass from me, and adds, not as I will, but as you will, as sort of a concession, mm -hmm. would, you, would you see there that still being Jesus' prayer answered because the Father's will was done? Would you... Mm -hmm. Would you see any tension there? Well, based on Hebrews, it tells us that because of Jesus' piety, his prayer was answered. I have to answer, yes, his prayer was answered. But I think it was answered in thy will be done, if that helps. Okay. Good question, Kyle. Any others? Okay. <clears throat> second proposition, perseverance and faithfulness. The second proposition represents the counterpart to the first. <clears throat> Scripture also teaches that perseverance and faithfulness or good works is likewise absolute and that all true believers will produce good works. The key text in support of the second proposition is found in James 2. Before looking at that verse, a good work must be defined. James provides the answer in his illustration of Abraham's works in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. Using the illustration of Abraham and his offering Isaac as a sacrifice, James defines what kind of works are required as evidence of a true saving faith. In short, James defines for us a good work. From James' illustration, a good work must include three things. First, a good work is something a believer does, <clears throat> a believer, 
in obedience to God's word. God commanded Abraham to offer Isaac, and Abraham responded in obedience to God's command. Second, a good work is motivated by love for God. <clears throat> Certainly, Abraham loved his son Isaac, the son of his old age, and the son of promise. Yet Abraham was willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice because Abraham loved God even more than he loved Isaac. I think that's demanded in the context. Third, a good work is also motivated by faith in God and in God's promises. According to the author of Hebrews, Abraham believed that if he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise Isaac from the dead. And the reason Abraham believed God would raise Isaac is because God had promised that in Isaac's offspring, all of God's promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. You see the connection there? He was absolutely convinced that if he slew Isaac as a sacrifice, God would raise him from the dead because of God's promises. So I conclude. In sum, then, a good work is anything a believer does in obedience to God's word, motivated by faith and love toward God. Returning to James 2, James introduces two rhetorical questions in this verse. The first question is, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? The second question is, can that faith save him? James' second question clarifies the meaning of the first and provides the key support for the second proposition. A rhetorical question represents an assertion in the form of a question, and the assertion is found in the answer to the question that the author makes clear in the context. An author uses a rhetorical question to engage his readers and have them make the assertion for him. So, for example, Romans 6.2, I think it is, should we sin that grace might abound? I think he's made clear, that is Paul, what the answer to that question is. But he wants his readers to make that answer, to make that a, a response. <clears throat> That's why he uses the rhetorical question. In James' second question, the articular noun faith represents the noun from the, repeats the noun from the first question and serves as the subject of James' second question. As in the first question, the noun is used in the, in the active or subjective sense of the exercising of faith. The article is anaphoric and points back to the faith of the individual described in the preceding question. The verb can, can that faith save him? The verb can means to possess the ability to experience or do something. In the indicative mood, the verb identifies the second question as a question of fact. And what James is asking about this faith, what this faith can do, is indicated by the complementary infinitive to save. As in James 1.21, the infinitive to save means to deliver someone from spiritual danger in the sense of to protect someone from eternal condemnation and punishment. The pronoun him serves as the object and has the indefinite pronoun someone in the first question as its antecedent, further linking the two questions. James adds the negative adverb, this is important, to indicate 
that he intends a no answer to a second question. As such, the negative adverb is left untranslated. With that in mind, it is important to note what James denies with his second question. With a second question, James does not ask, can faith save? As mentioned above, the article on faith is anaphoric and points back to the description of the individual's faith in the previous question. Thus, James asks, can a faith that does not have works save? James raised the issue of God's future judgment in the, of the unrepentant at the end of the previous verse. What James denies in this verse is that a faith that does not produce good works is able to deliver an individual from this judgment. It cannot save. In some, a faith that does not produce good works is not a true saving faith. The counterpart to James' denial represents the second proposition. A saving faith must produce good works if it is a saving faith. In other words, all true believers will persevere in faithfulness or good works as the necessary evidence that their faith is true saving faith. The converse is that anyone who professes faith and fails to, and fails to produce good works shows by that their faith is not a true saving faith. According to James, their faith cannot save them. However, the second proposition must be clarified. Scripture also teaches that while all true believers persevere in good works, not all do so to the same level of success. Support for the clarification is found in the Lord's parable of the soils in Matthew 13. With the parable of the soils, Jesus gives various responses to the gospel to explain why the gospel message has mixed results. Jesus identifies four kinds of soils and what happens when seed is sown in these soils. In his explanation, excuse me, in his explanation for his disciples, Jesus says that, that these soils represent humans and the seed represents the gospel. Of the four soils, only the last describes those who respond to the gospel in true saving faith. The support for this is twofold. First, Jesus uses the phrase good soil only with the fourth soil. Second, only the fourth soil produces a crop with a crop representing good works. In other words, the crop produced by those representing the fourth soil is the evidence that their faith is true saving faith. The seed sown in the other three soils fails to produce any lasting fruit. Only the fourth soil produces a crop. With that in mind, the clarification with the second proposition is found in our Lord's description of the fourth soil. Among those represented by the fourth soil, Jesus says that some will produce a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. According to Jesus' description, all true believers produce fruit, though not the same amount. Thus, to restate the second proposition, all true believers persevere in faithfulness or good works without exception, but all do so at varying levels of success. I'll pause it here. Questions so far? You realize silence construes consent. <laughs> Sir Thomas More. All right, objections. Now, these are, 
are challenging. The objections are challenging. So I'm building your expectations down just a little bit here. Two objections are raised with a second proposition. The first objection comes from Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul describes a believer who suffers the loss of all rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Yet, Paul says that this individual is still saved, though through fire. Since rewards are issued for good works, does Paul's description of this individual represent an exception to the second proposition? I'm glad you asked that question. Here's my answer. Can a true believer be devoid of good works, have no rewards, and still be saved? The short answer is no. (laughs) Obviously, I can't stop there. (laughs) The long answer is that Paul uses hyperbole in this passage to overstate his point. And Paul does this to emphasize the security of true believers at the judgment seat of Christ. So hyperbole. Our Lord says in the gospel, do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword. Now think about that. Here is the Prince of Peace saying, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's called hyperbole. He's overstating the point to make a point. He is the Prince of Peace. He does bring peace. He also is bringing a sword. All right, that's hyperbole. Paul's point is this, if it were possible for a true believer to be devoid of good works, a true believer, and to receive no words at the Bema seat, nevertheless, that person's salvation is still secure. He would not suffer the loss of his salvation. Paul describes him as saved as by fire in the sense that all his works and their rewards are burned up as worthless. And the reason Paul emphasizes that he is still saved, is to reinforce the security of salvation. That said, Paul used of hyperbole to describe a believer who is devoid of good works is both hypothetical and impossible. Elsewhere, Paul argues for the importance and necessity of good works as the evidence of salvation. Furthermore, from James 2, we can conclude that there will be some spiritual fruit or good works in the life of even this individual if he is truly saved. That's James's point. With that said, the good works produced in the life of every true believer are the evidence of salvation, not a condition for salvation. Scripture speaks with one voice on repentant faith as the sole condition for salvation. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any and all works. In some, good works are the fruit of faith, not the root of faith. The second objection comes from 1 Corinthians 11.30 in Paul's description of some believers who, because of persistent unrepentant sin, have died. In other words, uh, let me pause it there. Paul describes them as having fallen asleep in 1 Corinthians 11.30. And that's Paul's word for a believer who has died, fallen asleep. In other words, God has taken the life of these believers because of unrepentant sin. That being the case, in what sense can these believers be described as persevering in good works? Is not the fact that God has taken the life of these evidence 
that they have failed to persevere in good works? Again, the short answer is no. Drawing on the analogy of faith, Scripture teaches that all believers continue to sin. In James 3.2, James says, we all, he's including himself, we all sin in many ways. In 1 John 1.10, John says that anyone who denies that he sins makes God a liar. We know God is not a liar, and God's word is not in him. And as mentioned from 1 Corinthians 11, Paul teaches that believers can get caught up in a given sin to the point where God disciplines them with physical death. That said, Scripture also teaches that true believers cannot have their entire lives characterized by the habit and pattern of sin. In his first epistle, John argues that true believers have lives characterized by righteousness and obedience. Their lives are not characterized by unrighteousness and disobedience. Furthermore, John argues in 1 John 1, 9 that true believers recognize their sin and confess their sin on a regular basis. In 1 John 1, 9, John uses a customary present tense to describe the believer's ongoing confession of sin. What we can conclude from this is that true believers can become ensnared in some sin to the point where God takes their life. God does this so that these believers do not continue to harm their testimony or bring reproach upon the name of Christ. However, this one area of unconfessed sin does not characterize their entire lives. As difficult as it may seem, in other areas of their lives, they must be characterized by obedience, not disobedience, if they are true believers. Persisting in one area of unconfessed sin does not mean their entire lives are characterized by unrepentant sin. From the previous discussion, there must be some level of obedience and good works in the life of these individuals if they are truly saved. In some, the two propositions are supported. All true believers persevere in faith, and in faithfulness are good works without exception. Furthermore, from our discussion of Colossians, that was back on page one, God preserves for final salvation all those who persevere in the faith to the end. That said, Scripture also teaches that God causes true believers to persevere in the faith to the end. For that reason, salvation is monergistic or a work of God alone. In short, salvation is a gracious work of God from beginning to end. All right, so the two propositions, all true believers can persevere in believing the gospel without exception. The second proposition, all true believers persevere in faithfulness or good works also without exception. I've treated the objections. Let me pause and see if you have an objection. <laughs> How do you handle the thief on the cross? What is his good work? What's his good work? He professed faith in, in our Lord publicly. True. Yeah, that was his good work. That's how I would answer that. Just don't ask me about infants who die in infancy. I'll, I'll treat that at another workshop. Kyle, you, you have that look. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, sir. I had a couple, I guess. Your name, sir? John. John, good to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I guess I have one about each passage just about. 
Um, so the, the first Corinthians passage, I'm just looking at it, seems to be, correct me if wrong, but he's talking about like what you build on as far as building up the church. Okay. And so could it be possible that he's just not even thinking in such a micro level of like your smallest amount of good works so much as a lifestyle building up the church? Well, I think you're, you're spot on in terms of the focus of Paul's words. He's talking about their uh, partaking of um, the Lord's Supper. They're probably a, uh, a fellowship meal associated with that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 3. So, what, I'm sorry, John, what was your question again? That, um, as far as the building with a stumble, so on, that could it be that Paul is not even really concerned with at all the minutia of good works that someone might be, so much as building up the church in more of a macro? Okay, I think I understand your question, John. And I would agree, 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about uh, vocational ministers. But... Paul echoes those same words in 2 Corinthians 5 and applies it to all believers. So I think it's legitimate for us to say, although he is talking about vocational ministers, the principles still apply to all true believers. That's how I would answer that question, John. I hope that helps. Okay. You have a follow-up, John? I, yeah, not a follow-up to that one, but the next passage um, as far as the Lord's Supper. Yeah. You think part of God putting them to sleep in that case might be with the church so young, like kind of making an example of how big a deal the Lord's Supper is. Kind of like uh, taking a life, is it Annas and Sapphira? Um, I, think there's, I think there's some truth to that. In other words, uh, we don't seem to be seeing the Lord uh, responding quite so profoundly and uh, uh, expeditiously when uh, believers in the church today uh, are caught up in some unconfessed, unrepentant sin. And it may be that he was establishing a principle by his actions then that were to teach us all lessons about his holiness and our responsibilities to be pursuing holiness as he is holy. So I think there is some legitimacy to that. I'd have to study it further to be anything more than I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm hedging my bet. I don't know what that means, but I'm doing it. Any other questions? All right, let's go on. <clears throat> With the above in mind, the two issues raised in the introduction can now be addressed. The first is the relationship between perseverance and faithfulness. The second is whether faithfulness is the sole criteria for success in ministry and accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. Returning to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says that it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. The substantive faithful can be taken in one of two ways. The substantive is frequently used in the New Testament to describe someone who is trustworthy, dependable, or reliable. Whether in speech, and, or conduct, that should be or conduct. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, Jesus provides a definition of what it means for a servant to be trustworthy, dependable, that is, to be faithful. In the parable, a master gives talents to three of his servants. According to 25, 26, 
These talents refer to responsibilities. The master connects the use of these talents to sowing and reaping, responsibilities. The good servants are described as faithfully as faithfully carrying out, that should be carrying out, their responsibilities and are rewarded for their faithfulness when the master returns. As such, for a servant to be faithful means that a servant fulfills the responsibilities that his master has assigned him. Or to put it differently, a faithful servant remains steadfast in his duties. To pick up our keyword, he perseveres in the responsibilities entrusted to him by his master. At the same time, the substantive faithful can also be used to describe someone who exercises faith in the gospel to a believer. Paul's evaluation of his life in 2 Timothy 4 provides a definition of what it means for a servant to be faithful as a believer. In this passage, Paul gives three, a threefold description of his life as a servant of the Lord. Quote, I have fought the good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Focusing on the third description, the articular substantive faith is used in its passive or objective sense of a body of truth that is to be believed. As such, Paul uses the articular substantive, the faith, as shorthand for the special revelation given by Jesus and by his apostles and prophets. In this sense, the substantive, the faith, refers to the law of Christ. The law of Christ is everything that Jesus and his apostles and prophets have taught in word and deed, that should be and deed. The law of Christ has the gospel as its starting point, and the essence of the law of Christ, the essence, has been preserved in the New Testament canon. The verb kept serves as the predicate and means to hold on to something so as not to give it up or to lose it. I have kept the faith. Implied in keeping something in this way is the need to defend what is being kept from those threatening it. Thus, for Paul to say he has kept the faith means that he has persevered in believing the law of Christ and has defended it against all those who oppose it. What is significant about Paul's assessment of his ministry is that he gives it at the end of his life in anticipation of his giving an account before the Lord. Following his assessment, Paul addresses his evaluation by the Lord and its outcome. Because Paul has kept the faith in this way, Paul concludes by saying, in the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. In sum, a faithful servant is one who perseveres in believing in the faith and defending it against its opponents. And a faithful servant is one who perseveres in faithfulness to the tasks the Lord entrusts to his servants. Faithfulness as the sole criteria for success and accountability. Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4 serve as a transition to the last issue raised in the introduction. The last issue is whether faithfulness is the sole criteria for success in ministry and accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. As mentioned in the introduction, a key text in answering this question is 1 Corinthians 4. 
Citing the passage again, Paul writes, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, is required of stewards that they be found faithful. I'm going to end it there. Let's drop down to the next paragraph. Among the, among the points Paul makes in this passage, three support the conclusion that the sole criteria for success and accountability is faithfulness. First, Paul discusses his role as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. The two expressions, servant of Christ, that should be Christ, and steward of the mysteries of God, describe Paul's role as an apostle. In other words, Paul discusses his role as a vocational minister, a minister of the gospel of Christ. Whatever Paul says in this verse about himself in that role can be applied by extension to all those in vocational ministry. Second, the sole requirement Paul gives in this passage for Christ's servants in vocational ministry is faithfulness. From the discussion above, to be faithful in vocational ministry involves two responsibilities. I'm rehearsing. The first responsibility is that a vocational vocational minister must persevere in the faith. As discussed in 1 Timothy 4, a faithful ministry must persevere in believing the revelation Christ has given in his law with the gospel as its starting point. And a faithful minister must persevere in defending the faith against all who oppose it. As discussed in Matthew 25, the second responsibility is that vocational ministers must persevere in faithfulness or good works. For vocational ministers to, uh, for vocational ministers, these good works can be summed up in the Great Commission. The Great Commission is found in various forms in all four Gospels and in the opening of Acts just prior to the beginning of the church. Its strategic placement at the end of the Gospels and at the beginning of the church makes it central to vocational ministry. Thus, persevering in faithfulness means persevering in evangelizing the lost and in discipling the redeemed. For the Apostle Paul, being faithful meant giving special revelation and overseeing the founding and establishing of local churches. For vocational ministers today, Being faithful means carrying out the Great Commission in whatever role God has given them. According to Ephesians 4, God has given specific spiritual gifts, or if you prefer, gifted individuals for the church. Two gifts remain. The first are evangelists, those who engage in church planning by evangelizing the lost and discipling the redeemed. The second are pastors, teachers, those who shepherd the flock of God. In short, persevering in faith and in faithfulness, is the sum total of a vocational minister's charge as the servant of the Lord. This is what Paul meant in 1 Timothy 4 when he said, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Third, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 that the one who judges him is Christ. Paul specifically has in view his being judged by Christ when Christ returns to rapture the church. In the following verse, Paul writes, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Putting the above together, 
Paul establishes faithfulness as the sole criteria by which vocational ministers are judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And if faithfulness is the sole criteria for accountability, then faithfulness must also be the sole criteria for success in ministry. One additional passage must be addressed in that it raises questions whether faithfulness is the fact is in fact the sole criteria for success and accountability. In the upper room discourse, John 15, 8, Jesus says to his disciples, quote, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Here Jesus identifies the bearing of much fruit as the evidence that someone is his disciple and the basis on which the father is glorified. That being the case, is the bearing of much fruit included in the criteria for success and accountability for the Lord's servants? To answer the question, a second question must be asked. How does the Lord's servant bear much fruit? And the answer must be that the Lord's servant bears much fruit by being faithful to the tasks the Lord has given him, has given his servant. In other words, spiritual fruit is something the Lord produces. It is not something the servant produces. Borrowing Paul's agricultural metaphor from 1 Corinthians 3, the servant's task is to sow and water. God alone, Paul says, brings the increase. In some, the Lord produces spiritual fruit through the faithfulness of his servants. Returning to John 15, this verse clarifies what the Lord desires to produce in and through his servants, much fruit and how this glorifies the Father. At the same time, this verse does not overturn the fact that faithfulness is the sole criteria for success in ministry and accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. The servant's task is to sow and water. It is God who brings the increase. For that reason, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. I was going to add an application here. I ran out of time. Uh, I think it's saying the obvious, but I think we sometimes need to say the obvious. Success doesn't mean how large a work you're involved with. Success doesn't mean how well-known you are. Success means faithfulness. I would recommend a book written by Don Carson. It's a biography of his father. His father labored in French-speaking Quebec, a very difficult field. He labored in many churches as a bivocational minister. His churches were very small churches because that area is a difficult, humanly speaking, a difficult area to reach. He served faithfully his entire life in those ministries. And I read that book, (coughs) pardon me, I read that book And the Lord used it to uh, uh, encourage me, to challenge me, and to sober me that faithfulness is the sole criteria by which our lives are measured as servants of the Lord.